Welcome to the T2 Hubcast. Join T2 and guests as they discuss all things personal and professional development. The T2 Hubcast, brought to you by the People Performance People. So welcome to the T2 Hubcast with me, Martin Johnson. And me, Paul Longley. Paul, how are you doing? Great, thank you, Martin. <laughs> Settle into it, we're into it. Yeah, we will do it. So I've got a special guest on the podcast uh, for this episode, and I'm delighted to have him in. I've known him for a while, in and around Hull, growing up through rugby. Yep. Um, And since I started my business, um, I've worked with yourself and some other people I've known uh, on several occasions. I've been on your podcast as well, Paul. You certainly have, Martin. So this is like returning the favour. Payback. Um, And Paul is the founder uh, and everything chief everything officer he delivers he designs he works with uh organizations on all things mental health and mental health first aid the organization is called think mental health paul founded it two years ago and it's safe to say he's flourishing uh things are growing the demand is growing yeah uh it's meaningful work which i think is the main thing um works with the likes of you know small organizations mid-sized organizations in the education sector as well in education sets, but also with organizations like Ricketts, Smith & Nephew, global companies, yep. global brands who are recognizing the importance of, you know, delivering insight and education around mental health and mental health. First and, aid. I, and I think looking at that, um, one of my first big customers was um, Smith & Nephew. And I always say, and people who are close by me say, I, I don't do tech. I don't do tech a lot. But one of my first companies um, that we had, our biggest contract was Smith the Nephew and we quadrupled their mental health first aiders around the globe using tech. Um wow. and it was it was absolutely humbling to have people from India, Canada, United States, Sweden, all on the all on the same call talking about mental health, how we can support each other in different cultures. Um I learned a lot about culture um and mental health just undertaking them and we've we've worked with them for over a year and it's been absolutely amazing and I think they was probably the catalyst um for me to get other organizations within the city and we've worked all over the UK so yeah it's been a great two years but the journey's just started and you did recently culminated in the reason I'm saying this I know we do it for a living and I've done lots of conferences but you recently did quite a big event, didn't you, where you stood on stage and you were delivering a, a passionate talk on all things mental health. And who was you sharing the stage with? Kevin Keegan. Kevin Keegan, Kevin football Keegan. legend. And you were sort of yeah. saying to me, weren't you, this is surreal. It's like one minute uh, I'm working for another organisation in a completely different arena. And then um, I leave that. I leave that company. And then I decide to do something that I'm passionate about. I set up a company and it's really fingering the air stuff when you set up, isn't it? It's like, is this going to succeed or not? Is the demand, am I good enough? Do I know my stuff? Oh. Is it going to land? And then all of a sudden, Paul, 24 months later, you're on a stage with Kevin Keegan. So you've got to sort of tip your hat and go, fair play, mate. You know? And 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 do you know, it's it's one of them. Um, you suffer with imposter syndrome sometimes. You see big companies out there delivering big talks to big organisations and I think a good friend of ours always says, you just got to go out and do it. And um, I got asked to go down to London um, to do this conference in front of 600. And we delivered the talk and we did a question and answer at the end. And 
when I came away, I took my wife with me and she she only wanted to come with me to meet Kevin Keegan. That was it. <laughs> that was it. Want to see how I did. It was just to meet Kevin Keegan. But it was humbling because on the back of that, um, we've started negotiations with a company in America about collaborating about it because it was for the a, com- a US company. And when you think two years ago down the line, I was having to work to support Think Mental Health and pay the bills. It's 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 really humbling to think where we've come in Love it, two yeah. years. So before we get stuck into it, because I'm I know me and you feel feel passionate about mental health and resilience and well being and all that wonderful stuff. Um, but think mental health. Just describe it as in its existence at the minute. You are primarily uh, a consultancy, an organisation that goes into other businesses and trains first and foremost you can train their managers and staff on becoming mental health first aiders yeah but you can also deliver just general education and insight to anyone you can do one-to-one work with people who may be struggling at the time it's a little bit of everything isn't it but primarily is it around the mental health health yeah, first aid? It, primarily um it started off as mental health first aid um we we do um five levels we do um the youth where we deliver that to apprentices and school leavers and sixth form colleges and stuff. Then we've got our level one, level two and level three, which is norm half day, one day, two day courses. But then we've also got our land managers masterclasses, which has probably been the first course that I've actually delivered or created from scratch. That's been the biggest, biggest success and was talking about it off air is because a lot of, a lot of land managers, supervisors, want to talk to their team and want to help their team, but sometimes they don't know what to say and they don't know. If somebody approaches them, how do they conduct that conversation? So they don't say anything, which is the worst thing that I can ever do. So we go into a company and we've delivered, we've created this short, sharp um, course. I always call it a, a little bit speed dating for mental health to a manager. So it does give them, it doesn't give them a load of knowledge, but gives them the confidence to actually start those crucial conversations. And it's been a game changer for some companies. And it's we went into a company last year and we, we trained up 180 land managers and team leaders. And they said, I've had emails back. They've changed the way they fundamentally work through doing it because it's it's made them think and it ultimately it's made them care. Yeah. And that's the main thing, isn't it? It's like, not just doing it to tick the box and you know it, it's it's and to and to show the world that actually yeah we're going to embrace this it's actually genuinely caring that this is something that's important and that we want our employees to have and have access to um okay let's start right at the beginning yeah. mental health yeah. um it's a it's a, a topic it's an area that over the the, the last probably safe to say 10 to 15 years particularly has become uh, it's come to the fore of everybody's minds, but it's also become high on organisations' radars, and rightly so, um, in this bid to to reduce the stigma that once was. Uh, I don't think we're still fully there yet, but we're definitely somewhere down the line. I think we're a world away from what we was 10, 15 years oh, ago. Oh, massively. Um, but mental health, it's a very, very broad topic. It's a very, very big term is mental health, isn't it? Because you've got everything from you know deep understanding of what mental health is and the complexity complexities of it to things like co-caring disorders you know whether it's chronic ocd or bipolar or things where there's a change in the brain yep. brain function that actually 
presents with certain challenges from just general things like depression. Well, I say general, but depression, generalized anxiety yep. to somebody who's a hypothetical worrier to, you know, chronic ongoing um, anxiety to temporary anxiety. And then you've got things like life events and anchors that can change yep. your mood and your mental state at any one time. And then you've just got the bloody pressures of life, Paul. You know, general stuff like holding a relationship down, having a job, etc. So it's a very, very big area. Yeah, isn't it? and general, general things like life. Life's not a straight line, is it? Life's up and ups and downs, and it's it's how we handle those downs that's the main. And I think you mentioned resilience and how do we? Sometimes I, when I was at my lowest, um, I could feel the downs coming. I could feel my depression getting worse, but I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know how to cope with it. Um, now I'm a lot better. I always say now I'm on a journey still. I have bad hours and bad days, but I don't have bad weeks, bad months like I used to have. And I try and ed- help people through my own experience. But And just a thing on that, Paul. Yeah. Being very open about your own experience puts you in a really good position to be able to help and guide and advise others because you've got not only the knowledge of mental health, but you've also got a lived experience of it as well. Um, But going back to your point there, even when you have your bad hours and your bad days now, knowing what you do for a living, and this is an interesting question because it's almost like if you're a a plumber, you spend all day doing everybody else's houses, but you never do your own jobs. Exactly. If you're a builder, you do everybody else's house up and never do your own. People say to us, like, we do all of the stuff we do with organizations, with leadership training, cultural training, how often do we take ourselves out for some quality time and training? Yep. Is it the same with you? Do you find it easy to practice what you preach? Do you find it easy to recognize in the moment what to do based on your advice to others? Or is it completely different when you're in that moment? I I try and I've been a lot more aware of my moods and when I'm dipping because of what I do for a living. And I'm very conscious now of practicing what I preach. Um, so much so that I worked all through Christmas because I needed to work on the business. And it's very hard for me to switch off because you know what I do in the volunteer sector and you know what I do for a business. I love it, right? So how can you switch off from something that you're passionate about and love? But you have to. So I've booked a holiday for the end of the month, um, which I'm going to but. A lot of the time as well, I give my wife my mobile phone and I give my wife my laptop and I tell her to give me it back on Monday morning. And she didn't think I'd be able to do that at the start, but it was getting to a point where I wasn't stopping. And and I sat there and I thought, Paul, you're talking about mental health and well-being here and you're not looking after yourself as well as you should be. So I have put things in place. I feel a lot better. I get up and I go for a walk early mornings. Um, and I go everywhere. And if I get up late or if I get out of routine, I have to keep myself in a routine to keep my mental health good. And like you said, um, I do practice what I preach now. Um, I did seven sessions in the gym last week. <laughs> my body feels broken, but my mental health is brilliant. Um, and I'm there again tonight. And it's something that I'm really conscious. Last year, I was working on my business fully, right? I'm still working on my business, but I've made a conscious effort this year to work on me because I was looking after everybody else. I was building my business and I wasn't probably looking after myself 
the way that should. So if that helps you answer that question, it but does. this year I am really focusing on me. So in the, in a minute, I'm going to ask you about the the fundamental, in your opinion, the facets of mental health. I've got four or five big ones where I think if you take care of these four or five things, it significantly can either improve mental health or decrease mental health. Um, but, you know, let's look at, can I just ask you about generational shift and society and environments? I know we're going deep already, but let's no, go good. there, right? So let me give you my all my views and studies and where I've arrived at and what I'm seeing and what my conclusions are. And you tell me if it's in line with yours. So if you think about probably the last 50, 50 to 70 years, you know, pre-war up until pre-second world war up until now, you know, um, there's probably four or five generations within that time frame, And you, and, and the data shows this, Paul, it's like we are seemingly, seemingly not everybody because it's not an exact science but we're seemingly as a as a as a species becoming less resilient and that is leading to an increase in mental health yeah or poor mental health as you, as you as we would say um i think that's a general statement but i guess it's backed up now more and more that by some of the data and some of the evidence i mean the big question is is it but is it, or is it just that more people are talking about it now and it existed it existed 50 years ago, but we're just, we've got more, you know, information and more people are open about it now because there's less stigma. However, generally the data points to that there is more. And I think when you look at what are the factors that have changed over 70 years that could possibly cause a dip across a species in mental health, you can look at environment. Yeah, The environment is very different now. And when I talk about environment, I'm talking about the digital industrial revolution, you know, the fact that we have, you know, the generations of today are growing up digitally, which which can have a direct impact on mental health positively, but a lot, a lot of cases negatively. Yep. You look at diet and lifestyle, you know, we have much more access to fast food, sugary foods, fat foods, lazy foods, right? Whereas you could argue 70 years ago, we, you know, you, you didn't, right? Um, and, and there's a number of different things. And then you look at the, the, the biology of people in terms of parenting styles have changed compared to 70 years ago. Now we are showered with everything, two holidays a year. We go to Florida, we get Xboxes back, back 70 years ago. Maybe you didn't, and you had to work hard and, and appreciate stuff. Totally get it. So I could go on and on, but you get the point. Do you think that there's some validity in that? Or do you think actually there's probably similar cases of, of, poor mental health 70 years ago, but we just have more access to hear about it and there's less stigma these days. I I I agree with you. Um but I also I also come up with I usually get challenged at when I'm out socially or if I'm at a family party, right? I always use I always use this um example that because people know what I do, um I usually get challenged at get cornered. Right, all for the right reasons, and um, usually somebody might not be at the best, and they want to talk to me about their poor mental health, or I'll get somebody, and I'm I'm fifty three years of age, so we're talking about generational stuff. Somebody my age or a little bit older will grab me in a corner of a room and go, "Don't you think this mental health's a load of rubbish, Paul? When we was young, um, we just got on with stuff. We just..." Battled on, blah, blah. and I, I take what they say on board, 
I, I, I do. And I appreciate their opinions and their values and what they say. But I always remember as a youngster, um, you'll know as well, we had one of the biggest mental health hospitals built in Hull, in Cottenham called Delapol, yes. right? That wasn't built for any, because there was no need. Um, and also where I lived um, on a road in Hull called Hesel Road, I don't know three or four people as a young age taking their own lives. And people didn't talk about it then because there was a stigma and who's frightened. There was a lot of toxic language that um, I, I remember people saying to me, if you don't do as you're told, you'll get sent to, you'll get yeah. put in a straight jacket, you'll yeah. get sent to the loony bin. I remember and people that. didn't talk. And then I always switch back to like now, where society have got a lot more to worry about. A lot kids growing up have got access to lots more information because of the digital age. Um, where we went out and played football, we went and played rugby. Um, we were blissfully protected. We I was guess, protected because because you're absolutely right. Yeah. There's things like if you think about it, when we talk about brain development, we just talked about it out there. Um, you know, your you, your logical, rational brain that 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 really is responsible for processing and coming up with logical outcomes and solving problems and trying to contextualize stuff that doesn't fully form, and the synapses is that that link to the rest of your brain don't fully form until you're probably, you know, 16 to 18 years old. And even then it's still maturing into your twenties. But if you're a 12, 13, 14 year old boy or girl these, these days, and you have access to things like pornography yeah. or, or self-harm and, and material around suicide or whatever it might be, there's a case to say, Paul, what you're saying there is that they're, they're ill-equipped to process and contextualise that at that age. All, all that, that information have... they can read about and they don't understand about, they've got access to that. As When we was younger, we didn't have that information. We didn't know that information existed because we, we, we couldn't. You can read books, but our information was teletext or, and I used to go football scores or the paper and I used to read the back four pages. It, we didn't have access to what we've got access to these That's days. That's going to have that, that access to the information they have access to. I mean, my girls, you know, they, they have TikTok. We monitor it. We don't, I don't give them all social media platforms. We have TikTok. And my, my 12 stroke 13 year old talks about stuff. And I say, how do you know about that? She's like, oh, I saw a TikTok video on it. Now it's nothing bad, but no. it's just something I think at 12 years old, you, how do you know about that? What you've just said? And I think, and I think what it does is that must have a profound effect on your psychology. If if you are accessing material and you're being exposed to things too early before your brain function and brain maturity is able to process it. I think what you've just said there, you monitor what your daughters access. How many parents out there give their children mobile phones because of peer pressure? So they have to they have to be with the the Joneses, as we say. And don't monitor what their children... A hell of a lot. And I read a book, and we always talk about kids these days have changed. I don't believe kids these days have changed. Parents have changed. And we need to monitor what our children are accessing. Because if we don't, then they grow up with having issues. And I believe us as parents should should monitor what our kids... You, you wouldn't go and give a child... Uh, a drill or any any form of anything without training. So why would you just give a child 
a mobile phone that can access all these platforms. But what you've just said, you do monitor. And education as and well. And education. And even if they do ask a question about something, we sit and talk about it and we'll educate about it, you know. And and But, you know, coming back to your point on this point is, and I think we're both in alignment here is, yes, I do think my personal view is, I think the data shows it. And I think there is, a, there is definitely an increase in declining mental health. It's not to say it wasn't there before. It absolutely was. It yep. always has been. And we know from an evolution and a, and a biology perspective and yep. from, from looking at neuroscience and the way the brain works, that things like co-occurring disorders have been around for centuries, right? People have struggled with mental health. But I think what we're saying here is the environment of today with, you know, combined with other changes in lifestyle, of, of, of this generation in terms of diet and, and exercise, etc. You know, you look at the impact of gaming and you look at the impact of gaming on kids. You know, we were out like terracing around playing football and rugby, not coming into the lights went out. Exactly. You know, kids today generally spend a lot of time sat either in school and then they come home and they spend a lot of time on iPads, Xboxes and sat in the house. And I think you put it all into the melting pot, poorer diets, less movement, access to the to the internet and the digital world and being exposed to subjects, topics and things that really might be too early for their brain maturity. And you can sit and then plus changing parenting styles and the way we parent. Yeah. You put all that into the mix and I think you can say that there's a then a recipe for poor mental health. Yeah. I'm reading a book at, I'm reading a book at the minute called um Digital madness. It's about social media and how we, how we're doing social media now, and how we're we're living behind screens. And you you talk a lot about the human species. We're not designed for that. And they talk about something like um, the flatter our screens are getting, the bigger our the bellies big, are getting. The bigger <laughs> our bellies are getting. Yeah. And it just talks about we're not designed to be sat in all the time, going on these gaming. And spending hours be out of screen, we're designed to be out and about. Well, the principles of health, aren't they, are what you put in your body, what you consume, your diet. Yeah. We was primarily designed to eat plants and meat. Anything that lived or grew in the ground was our yep. staple diet. That's how, how we evolved. No refined sugars and carbs and you know, and gluten and all this stuff that we've actually manufactured over the years. Um but I think, you know, so so diet is a is a big one. Movement is massive. We're built to move. Yep. Um, and and you know, there's there's certain things that are impacting that. I always talk about purpose as well, Paul. I think part of a big thing that I observe in my coaching and, and when we talk to organizations and teams about resilience and, and improving your mental state, it's it's having a purpose. Yeah. You know, having when you wake up in the morning, having a sense of belonging that you go, right, I've got to get up and get at them because I've, because I serve a purpose. I've got a job to do, or I've got something to achieve. And I think you can't under, yes, we've talked about digital. We've talked about movement. We've talked about diet. We've talked about a lot of stuff, but don't underestimate the power of purpose in, in positive mental health as in when you get up in the morning and you've got something to achieve and you've got something that's floating your boat and making you nervous, but equally as excited that is unbelievable on the brain chemicals that will tip the balance back in the favor of drive and motivation and reward 
and not catastrophization and stress. You know, your fight or flight will take over if you get up in the morning and you've got nothing to do, you don't serve a purpose, you feel like you've got no value, you're not important, and you've got nothing to look forward to. All you will then trigger into is worry and anxiety. Yeah. And after a period of time, that becomes more general and ongoing, and that's where you start to have a problem. And I think for years, I was in an industry for 32 years, same industry, week in, week out. And I, I believe the last three years, I was probably, I was doing the job that I liked, but I wasn't doing the job that I was fulfilled. And I wasn't doing a job that I got up on a Monday morning and I was thinking, right, let's go at this. And I think that didn't help me mentally. Um, the luckiest thing that happened to me um, was September 2019. I got made redundant. No fault of our own. I was just a company. Now, that was my massive comfort blanket of 32 years was smashed. What can, what would I do next? But since then, I've, I thought, right, I need to do something. In the, in the next 18 years of my working life, I need to do something I'm passionate about. So I changed it. Um, and ever since, it, I've been scared. I've been frightened. I've, but I've been, it's been so rewarding. I think we talked off air about if you want to change your life and you want to do something, you've got to get out of your comfort zone and do it. And it's it will be frightening. And it's it's so, so hard. But I get up every single morning now and I look at my calendar for the week and think, I'm meeting some great people doing some great stuff. But I think if I haven't got med redundant, I'd still be there now yeah. wishing what I'd done. So my advice to anybody, if they're in something that they don't like and they're not fulfilled, change it. Yeah, Because you're the only one who can change it. And this is why people in long-term jobs who are unfulfilled and unhappy do start to suffer with mental health because yeah. they don't have that purpose and passion. In fact, it turns into... It turns into the opposite. It turns into getting up every morning with, I really don't want to go today. Yeah. It turns into anxiety. It turns into watching the clock on a Sunday night. Oh my God, I've got to go to work tomorrow. I'm dreading every minute of it. It turns into resentment. It turns in, which in turn, you know, starts to drive a victim mentality. You're looking for every reason as to why your organization's rubbish. Your boss is an arsehole. The yeah. world's against you. And you become a very negative Person, I become in, all them. I become all in them. In the absence yeah. of purpose, there's only one other way to go. Yeah, and that's resentment, right? And and I think I talk to people a lot about that because I think there's something to be said for that, and you know, and, and finding that is is important. Um, what we're going to do in about five minutes, Paul, is we'll have a very quick break, and then we'll come back on. We'll do yeah. two parts of this because I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. Let's come back to mental health first aid and organizations and, and let's come back to how what they can possibly do to arm people with the confidence. And I think that's the word. Arm your because if you think about it, in organizations, you become a manager or a leader or yep. a person of, of of influence because you're good at your job or they've seen uh, something in your you know, and you've risen up and now you're taking on not only responsibility for executing what you do, but a bunch of people as well. Yeah. And mostly, we've all been there, when you step into that leadership position, you're really equipped to deal with it, right? It's different personality styles. It's different challenges. It's managing conflict. It's supporting people when they're down, rewarding them when they're up. It's, it's, it's that human skill, isn't it, that you don't really get taught up until that point. But mental health is an added I think, layer of complexity on top of that in terms of 
leading people and communicating and sorting day-to-day problems out is one thing, but having the confidence to drive conversations and listen and guide and advise and support people who are suffering, suffering from mental health. I think it terrifies the life out of people, Paul. It certainly does. It certainly does. And it's, I think I've learned more in the last two years talking to people in companies and organisations, not just the leaders, but the actual people on the factory floor. Because I'm from a production background, so I love being on the factory floor. I love talking to people. That used to be my strength. Um, my, my management of people was very, very good. Um, I used to have really, really good relationships. And I try and form my production head and my mental health head and put them together to help organisations. And I think we touched on giving giving, giving the leaders um, the tools to actually start them conversations. But what I also say as well, leaders need to show vulnerability. Um, because as I showed vulnerability years ago, I, it made me a stronger member of that team. Because I used to grow up, I'm the eldest brother of three, so I used to look after my brothers, look after my mum. Then I got married. It was my job to look after my family, my wife, my grandchildren. I was a production manager, so I had to look after everybody else. So I used to have to think, I I had to be the big leader, I had to be tough. Um, I had to be the head. But actually, when I came out and told everybody about my poor mental health and I didn't have everything figured out and I started discussing this. My team members used to come up to me and ask me how I was, right? And we had conversations about their poor mental health and man. And it, it ended up at the company where I was, I was in charge of about 90, 100 people. I was talking to 12, 12 or 15 people at that one time about their poor mental health and everything was in confidentiality. So that made me stronger as a team. Unbelievable. And on that note, because I think you've just touched on something there, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. But the power of vulnerability is a starting point for all organizations, managers, and leaders. Let's pick that up after the break. Okay. So we're back after the break. Um, Paul, I want to pick straight up on where we left off. So you talked about vulnerability um and that actually it's it's getting the message across to organizations and leaders that if you're going to create a forum where other people are going to open up to you then you've almost got to be willing to do it first yeah because there's something endearing in the about and and, and the, the level of trust between individuals goes up when one party looks at another party who carries a more senior position than them and like you I think you use the words when people realise I didn't have all the answers and I didn't have it all worked out, it humanises you. Exactly. Whereas I think when you look at somebody as a leader in an organisation, you think you're so powerful and confident and you're killing it and everything's amazing and you've got no weaknesses. I think it can be intimidating for you then to open up to somebody. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah. And when we when we started having these conversations, um, we ended up, we had, a, we had like a code word and it was something that, we just developed. And so people used to come into me and tell me about issues that they had either at home or at work. And I opened up um, to man. And even when I used to be walking around the factory and there was people working on the other side of the machine and we'd had our confidential one-to-ones. And I used to just look at them and I used to go, 
they used to say, how are you, Paul? And I used to go, marvellous. That's all right. So then the next day, I'd look at them, and I'd just, how are you? Just a just whisper. And as it was only me and that person who knew what we was talking about, they'd go marvellous back to me. And it come to a point where I'd walk around the factory and different people would just say, I'd, go, I'd just put a thumbs up to them, and they'd go, marvellous. Or even clocking on in the morning, they'd just say that to me, or they'd say, Paul can have a chat with you later. And we formed a really, really good bond and a really good, strong team ethic that somebody, because um, mental health um, affects everybody at all different levels. But when you open up to somebody, my staff would do anything for me. Mm. I'd say, look, could you do, do me an extra hour or could you do this? And, and you, it was like, I'll do anything for you. And you've just made a good point because when you think of the term mental health, and this is the problem for, with it for me, when you think of the term, the word mental is in it. Now, going back 70 years, as we said earlier, mental was associated with asylums. Yeah. And being in a straitjacket, you was mental. And I think that, therefore, the stigma, the branding of it, I mean, it does what it says on the tin, and I'm not saying it's the wrong brand, but it, it, it creates a dilemma, I yeah. think, when you talk about mental health. But I talked about the most confident, powerful leader who's got everything in check and all the rest of it. That might be the case. They might be con- look. Look at me, right, Paul. I'm a. I would say that my. I'm a confident person, and I would say I'm resilient, and uh, I would say that I don't think I can put my hand on my heart and say that I've suffered for a period of time with mental poor mental health in my life. I can honestly say that. However, have I had moments in my life where I'm incredibly pressurized and stressed? Yes. Have I had times in my life where I've had a massive wobble and thought I've made the biggest mistake ever by you know doing something? Yes. Have I had a time in my life where I've had a stretched relationship with a friend or family member, which has really weighed on my mind and really affected me in the short term? Yes. So although I would say I can't can't resonate with the fact that I've had an ongoing poor mental health Mm. uh, episode, what I can say is I've had moments of poor mental health where I'm not saying that it's it's led to a certain outcome diagnosis or situation, but I've struggled. Yeah. Whether it's struggling with my sleep for that for that period of time, or just couldn't get something out of my head, or my mood was low, or I was irritable and angry. That's mental health. Yeah. Right. So your point of everybody's got got it to an extent at some point, whether it's good, indifferent, or poor, is a really good observation. So even if you've got that confident leader or that seemingly you know person who's doesn't suffer at all, mark my words, they they have done. Even if it's for a brief fleeting period, they've got they've got they've got situations that they can pull upon to say, yeah, I had a tough time once, and here's how I dealt with it. Because I, I I genuinely think all humans and enjoy, I, I think all that, humans enjoy suffering. I th- I think you've made a great point there because everybody. I always say, I I, I tend not to use um. I say when people are feeling the best or when people have got pressures, right? And how much pressure has business leaders got, right? A lot. A lot. We've all got pressures at all different levels. But I always, it's what I like when I go into companies and organizations at all levels. If we can get people communicating with each other and people opening up and people being honest and showing vulnerability, then it's an absolute game changer for businesses because that there's no much so rewarding then i i always say i i always say the the new the new currency is happiness right we all know in businesses now where 
people want the same skill sets at different companies and um, everything. But I always think if you feel valued, if you're looked after, if people listen to you at your company, if one of your competitors comes in and offers you a little bit more money, but you're happy and feel valued at your company, you're not going to leave. You're not going to leave because you enjoy going into work every day. And it's it's one of the things I bring up with companies and organizations that are going, culture's massive, absolute from top to bottom. I, I and, and culture's massive. All right, let me let me go into a direction here because I feel I feel this is an important part of the whole mental health discussion. Yep. You you used coined a really good phrase there. You said, you know, happiness is the modern currency in organizations. I agree, you know, people are looking for fulfillment and happiness more than ever. But here's what I talk about and here's what I say. If you if you look at us as a species, evolved over millions of years, but certainly from foraging the earth to where we are today, it's happened in 200,000 years. And if you if you look at that evolution, always in the history, we've always been built to endure suffering. So part of humanity is going, you're going to have to endure challenges, pressure and suffering and struggle. It's why our, you know, the reason we're here today is because we've been bloody good at staying alive. Mm. You know, survival has been our number one innate function since we foraged the earth. And we're very good at it. And the reason we're very good at it is because we have this alert system in our brain in 7.8 seconds to 10 seconds, which says fight or flight, friend or foe, in or out. Is yep. this a risk to me or not? And even still today, we know that that is the first part of our brain to kick up and assess a situation. So the cortisol, the chemical that floods our brain to say, switch on there is a threat, is always going to be with us. Now, what will come with that, therefore, is that that's going to that's going to kick off and flat, you know, that that's going to activate numerous times a day and hundreds of times a week. Yep. From getting in our cars and driving on the motorway to worrying about being late for somewhere to the exposure of failing at work or at school to whatever it might be, our reputations. There's a lot of fight. Just because we don't run from saber-toothed tigers anymore doesn't mean to say we don't have survival-based situations in our head. So enduring stress and anxiety and suffering is part of human existence, and it's never going to go away. But here's my point I'm going to make, Paul. I think if you look at all the things we've talked about on this podcast up until this point, changing parenting styles, the fact that we get anything that we like, the fact that we experience materialistic and you know rewarding things on a regular basis, social media, the fact that we need gratification and likes and acknowledgement, you know, even the workplace is turning around. There was once a time where employers said to the employee when they started, here's what I need you to do for me. Here's what I need from you. Now it's flipped. Employees say to the employers, here's what I need you to do for me yep. and I'll work for you. It's completely reversed. So what I'm saying here, Paul, I'm going to encapsulate it in one statement, if you like. I think the balance has tipped. We are we are so hell-bent on reward, happiness, gratification, and fulfillment, right, that it's like if we don't have it for a fleeting moment, every single moment of our day, we're not dealing, therefore, with the downs yep. and with the the hardships and with the stress and with the anxieties very well. We're, we're catastrophizing them more than we ever did because 
it's like, hang on a second, I need I need to be liked. I need to I need to have purpose. I need to have fulfillment. I need to be rewarded. I need to be, you know, given freedom and flexibility. I need to be catered for. Well, actually, the world doesn't work like that. So do you think there's a case of going, my, my view is, is if we're going to improve mental health for the generations going forward, it's not only around finding fulfillment and happiness that counts, it's a big part of it, but it's teaching them and it's educating around our ability to enjoy the moments where we we are suffering, that counts. And do you know, when I when I go into companies and we're, we're delivering our training, you come up with a, you come up with a, should we say, mental health action plan and... There's part of that that's what can the company do for us, right? But there's also what can you do for yourself? Yeah. 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 And that's massive. I, I've got a, an example. There was a guy who used to work closely with me uh, doing doing some bits. And he said, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not doing anything for me anymore. So I use that as an example. Now, I know this guy, to keep his mental health well, he used to love going to the gym. He used to love cooking his own food. He used to love playing music, right? So he was hitting out saying, I don't want to do that anymore because it's not doing anything for me. Then I, I, re- I just had a conversation with him. I said, what are you doing for yourself? Um, what's changed? He'd started going to the pub from work. From the pub, he never had time to cook, so he bought takeaways. He stopped going to the gym. So when we reeled it back and actually talked to him, he was like, yeah, it's not that that's not working for me. It's me doing the wrong things that makes him feel good. And when I go into companies and organizations, yeah, a lot of companies, we can do things better. We can all do some things better. But what do you do for yourself to make you feel better? I think it's an amazing point, Paul, because again, with my children, the way I parent, I mean, by the way, and I will caveat this by saying, being a parent is the hardest thing I think there ever is to do. And if anything in my life, whether it's business or being a parent or being a husband or whatever it might be, it's the one thing I'm always questioning myself on. But here's what I try and do with my teenagers who are growing up with this brain, crucial stage of brain development right now. They will come back home from school or from their friends or whatever it might be. And they'll, they're already starting to catastrophize situations as teenagers do, right? They'll come home and they'll say, oh my God, you can't believe what's going to happen today. And it's really made me upset. And it's just that, and I listen, I listen and I, and, I, and, they, and they tell me exactly what the scenario is. And instead of me jumping on the bandwagon as a parent going, I can't believe that's happened to you today. That is disgusting, right? I, I don't, I'd never get caught up in that. My first response always to them is, okay, so what did you do about it or what can you do about it? And they go, well, well, what do you mean? I'm like, no, no I get it. You're upset. This has happened. Yep. You can't change that now. You feel a certain way. What do we do next? And they're sort of like, they look at me as in like, well, that's not exactly the response I wanted, dad. I want you to side with me and I want you to, I want you to go and I'm like, no, because all that counts is that you're enduring a little bit of suffering right now. Mm. This is good. This will put you in good stead for the future. But how you respond is everything. Exactly. So let's always remain focused on how we respond and not right now on the injustice of what's happened and your interpretation of how it's making you feel. That is valid. And your forum for being able to share how you feel is really important. But once you've done that process, you've got to get mega actionable on how you're going to respond. 
And and sometimes it, the, 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 I'm not one of your clients now, Dad, you know, but I'm trying to get them all ready to understand that. You can't, you can't control the non-controllables in your no. life, but what you can always control is how you respond. Yep, totally get that. So and... stay in that lane if you can. You know, that that's sort of is that part of the some of the bits you do around the action plans? You know, you've got to make decisions and take action and Yeah, know, and how that... we're how we're gonna move forward. And it's it when you go into companies and organizations and talking to individuals, and if I'll have a a one to one with a with a person who's not at the best, um I'll ask them what 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 they what they're currently doing. Um and then what what they're going to do going forward, and we'll we'll probably do some a bit of goal setting. What do you want to achieve in the next six months? How do you want to get better? Um, what do you do currently? That's what's what's some of these triggers? Um, what triggers you to act in a certain way? And we just try and change that change that mindset around because, like you said, catastrophizing stuff. I probably used to do that a lot. Um, catastrophize everything. I think everything was going to be worse than it actually was. But it wasn't, and we're talking at the start of the the podcast, and I was going on stage in front of six hundred the night before, and it, this <laughs> this is this is the truth. I was ill that week and I couldn't talk the day before, and I went down to London, saying to the wife, "I can't do it tomorrow. Can't do it. Can't talk." And I, I, um, one of our good friends, Leon, I rang him up. He said I sounded like um. Over the duck, and I couldn't speak, but I catastrophized everything. The next day, I thought, right, I've got to get through 45 minutes. I changed my mindset. I've got to get through 45 minutes. I've got to do it the best as I so can. So then the next thought to that, Paul, would have been, so what? how do I do this? Yes. Right, let's go over it again. Here's your start. Here's yep. your finish. Here's, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, you're in a different frame of mind because you're mega actionable on what you're going to do. Yep. Rather than being focused on what you want to avoid and the consequence of what might happen, yep. what we call that in in when we're talking when we talk about performance psychology is the difference between a challenge and threat state mindset. Yep. Threat state is overly focused on the consequence. That is a horrible place to be because it just releases more cortisol, which creates more anxiety, which creates more cortisol, and it's just a self perpetuating cycle, and you can't get out of it. What something magical happens in the brain when you go, okay, I'm doing this. So if I'm going to do it, I need to get my ducks in a row, which means I'm going to now make some decisions which are going to lead to actions which are going to stop the cycle of worry and procrastination. And, you know, because after all, and I say this, Paul, all the time, there is nothing more powerful than a decided mind. Yeah. There just isn't. So I decided that the next day I was going to do it. Um, I went to the chemist and bought some bought some throat sweets and dis- <laughs> di- whether that's psychological. But you're making decisions. But I'm making point. decisions. Yeah, yeah. The, the next day I'm going, I said to the wife, I've just got to get through 45 minutes. I'm going to do it. And afterwards it's done. And I did it. And it was the best thing. But honestly, catastrophizing, I'm going to get on stage. I'm going to be able but to But let me talk. ask you a question. When you finish that talk... To a, I have no doubt to a round of applause, and you left the stage. How did you feel? Oh, amazing! It was amazing. Like, have you experienced ex- exhilaration, reward? Have you have you ever have you experienced it to that level much in your life? Um, no, not 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 a lot. And it was a 
it was a bit of self. It, it was another one of of my battles of the years. Um, and now when I catastrophize anything, I think of that. Yeah. Um, There's not no, much more pressure than that. No, you, you know? got you got over that, Paul. So you can get over the next. Um, I walked in here today and I went, Martin, I'm a bit nervous today. Um, and <laughs> it's it's just one of them. You want to do your best. So I think sometimes we over catastrophize everything. But once you've got over one thing, use that as an example to get over the next. 100%. Because you do that all the time. And I'll, I'll always use that as an example for me. Because there'll be times moving forward that I'll think, oh, I can't do this. I can't well, do this. The reason I ask you that question is because the greatest rewards and fulfillment, as in dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin running through your brain, which just make you feel on top of the world, driven, motivated, inspired to go again. The greatest senses of that always come on the other end of adversity. Yeah. Because without you worrying for a week, without you losing your sleep, nearly pulling out, you know, being frightened to death, there's no way that the adrenaline rush and the dopamine and serotonin release would have been as great. You almost have to have that frightened, absolute like cortisol, fight or flight moment. You always have, almost have to have that because then on the end of it, it's always amazing. Oh, it's amazing. And, and and I think there's a massive thing in that. We avoid our fears and we avoid things that make us uncomfortable. So how are we ever going to get the mo magic moments that give us confidence? How are we going to grow? Exactly. Uh, and over the last two years, I've accepted doing functions and going into organizations that I would never, ever believe that I was capable of doing. And now I say yes, and then think how I'm going to do it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, of course I can. Yeah, I'll do that for you. That, Paul. Yeah. Of yeah. course I can do that. That's no problem. No problem think, at all. Oh, my God, can I? But then you deliver, don't you? Because it gets the best out well, of you. Well, what that does is it, it, it thrusts you. It's a proof. Once you've committed to something and you're all in, right, it thrusts you into a series of events where you start making decisions and taking actions, which leads to outcomes. Yeah, and 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 that's 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 the secret to it, right, Paul? Five minutes left. If you was to give one piece of advice, or if you was to, and I know it's a it's a hard thing, but if you was to give one piece of advice to organisations out there right now, twenty twenty three. Uh, we've just done our content trends for the year of 2023 in the top five and in the third place for learning and development of all organizations, mental health is number three. Right. So, you know, it's been in the top five poll for the last five years. So it's not going anywhere, right? Still on everybody's radar. And it's still one of the most important subject matters that corporations and organizations need to get better at, I need to educate their managers, their staff on and support and do a good job of the support. So if there was, a, if there was some advice that you've seen what organizations do really well, who are, who are, nobody's getting it right across the board and is perfect, but the summer were really making a play at this and doing better than others. I think that would be safe to say. Now, what would it be if there's a HR director listening to this or a senior leader in an organization is it starting with, is it top down, educate ourselves first, become vulnerable, then cascade? Is it about getting mental health first aiders on the front line, the people who are absolutely still running the teams and are close to people? What would your advice be? I believe that leaders need to buy into it, invest into it, because it's it's a very important investment. I, 
I also believe on the factory floor it's critical on on the call face. Um, sometimes I get team leaders, managers that are mental health first aid trained to give them the tools to start the conversations. But I go into a lot of companies and organisations that are very, um, should I say, male dominated environments yeah, where I've gone. Still yeah. a lot of that today. And I think sometimes the people on the factory floor sometimes don't want to speak to the leaders uh, at the current time. It's good for them to have the knowledge because then they buy into it. But I always believe if you're working in a gang of 20 people or you're working in an office, sometimes people lead on to that trusted friend or you you always you've you've always got better friends in an office or trusted people i would say get them trusted people involved um so identify the identify people, identify the people in your organization who are already sort of semi doing it anyway yes the empathetic people who lend an ear who are who are trusted who have high degrees yes. of trust because they're the ideal candidates to become mental health first aiders or ambassadors because yeah. they've got the in raw ingredients. I think ambassadors are massive, a, a great word because a lot of people tend to go to people who are trusted in the office, trusted in their environment. Um, it's great for senior people and managers to get mental health understanding so they have buy-in, right? But I believe the mental health aid people that I see the most success with are those who are amongst it. Those who sometimes they can be working alongside of a person and they can start that conversation in confidence. And it can be, it doesn't have to be a formal interview in That's an office. It. It's not contrived. It, it's not yeah. contrived. It's you can be making each other a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and you're asking them how they're feeling. And then you can carry that conversation on the factory floor. And people might think you're talking about sport or you're talking about politics or you're talking about anything, but you're actually talking about how they're feeling and starting that conversation. I think that's where businesses need to go and just show that you care. I like it. Make it informal. Don't have it like oh, you, you go into room 4C to see the mental health, mental health first aid. It just feels yeah. already you're creating that environment, whereas identify the right people with the right characteristics and traits, put them through some mental health first aid support uh, or courses, qualifications, whatever it might be. But when you apply in the workplace, allow it to happen organically rather yeah. than it be too. I, I always yeah. say I, I go into my passion, you know, my passion's always been rugby league, right? I'm a massive, um, but my new passion is going into companies and creating change. And what do I mean by that? is making people talking about mental health the norm, talking about our feelings and our emotions be the norm. And that's what I aim to do. Paul Longley, I think we should finish on that because I think that was a really profound uh, statement. I could talk to you all day long. Thank you for coming in. Uh, I think we should probably do another one in the future if you're Thank up for you. Thank you, yeah. But um, the, the organisation uh, is Think Mental Health. Just quickly, Paul, if people want to get in touch or inquire or whatever it might be, how can they get to you? So they can go on my website, www.thinkmentalhealth.co.uk or email me on paul at thinkmentalhealth.co.uk and we can have a chat and discuss how Think Mental Health can help their business, which it doesn't suit every... I always say one 
one thing doesn't fit every company and I, I go in and we can deliver bespoke training to suit their needs. Awesome. Paul Longley, it's been a pleasure. Keep up the great work, mate. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back shortly with another T2 Hubcast. Thank you.